Hi, everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Louise Parr-Brownlee and Dr. Connor Underwood from the University of Otago. They both joined us for a webinar on their research involving acute optogenetic stimulation for the treatment of Parkinson's disease in a rat model. Let's jump in. So somebody in the audience has asked, why is the open configuration for the stereotactic frame better for implantation? Yeah, essentially because both ends of the cable, so the fiber optic cable that you're using the stereotactic tool to insert, you're using the stereotactic tool to insert the fiber optic into the brain and it's connected to the animal in both locations at the one end and at the other end. Okay, one end goes into the brain and one end is goes gets buried underneath the skin. And so it needs to be in an open configuration so you can remove it afterwards. If it's in a closed configuration, it's going to be stuck on the animal. You're not going to be able to remove it unless you can cut into it and remove it and then it's single use. So yeah, it's really critical that that tool is, as I said, in the open configuration. Okay, great. Thanks for clarifying that. Another question here. This one is asking, do you need transgenic animals for this type of work? It's not a requirement. No. We use rats and most commonly for rat work using opsins, we'll use a virus to deliver the transgene. Yeah, simply because there aren't that many transgenic rats. It's not like mice where there are lots of different transgenic rats to suit your purpose. It's far more common to use viral vectors to deliver the transgene. So in all of our work, we use viral vectors instead of transgenic rats. Okay, perfect. This question has come in that is asking, how long do you wait after making the headpiece before closing the abdomen? Yeah, so we we build the dental cement headpiece over about 45 minutes and we do it incrementally. And so by the time you're putting the final layer of dental cement on, all the other layers are completely cured. So really, you only need to wait a couple of minutes after you apply that final layer before which you can flip the animal over and uh, continue with the rest of the surgery. Yeah, so not long at all. But I think it, it, it does depend on what type of dental cement you're using. We're using acrylic dental cement. I can't comment on any other form of dental cement. Okay, perfect. And then there's a second part to that question. How are you closing the skin surrounding the dental cement, particularly the incision made by the trocar? Yep. So the, the incision made by the trocar is really only towards the head. The whole idea of the trocar is so you can bury a tunnel, a subcutaneous tunnel, and not have to make a big incision at the head. We close, so after we've built the dental cement headpiece, or while we're building the dental cement headpiece, we take time to just close the both ends of the head incision with a couple of discontinuous sutures, just like you would in any other stereotactic surgery. We use um, dissolvable suture material, just so we don't have to go in afterward and remove those sutures. And really, you only need maybe one at the front towards the nose and maybe two or three at the back of the head. It's just the ones at the back of the head is really just so you completely disguise those cables. Mm-hmm protect them from getting gnawed on by their cage mates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or scratched 
particularly by the animal. Mm-hmm. If they scratch the back of the neck, you want to you want to protect the cables, particularly the fiber optic, which from time to time we have experienced snaps at the back of the head. Okay, good tips. Thank you. There's a question here that's asking about the stability of this telemeter while the rat is freely moving. The stability of the stimulation, it's completely stable. It does not drop out. The biopotential, I think it depends on what you're recording. We, we do EEG. We have done EMG as well. With EEG, we only get artifacts with chewing, and that's quite normal with EEG, no matter what system you use. Yeah, so really, it's super stable. And I would say even more stable than tethered systems because simply because the fiber is shorter, the, the cable is shorter and completely contained within the animal. So there's nothing for the animal to tug on, as it were. And our experience with EMG, when we did a couple of EMG experience, experiments, yes, yeah, completely stable with the animal moving. Of course, if you're recording EMG, you get changes in the the biopotential with movement because you're recording muscle. But in terms of artifacts, no, it's completely stable with movement. Yeah, makes sense. Great. Okay. This next question first says, thank you for an interesting talk. And then the question is, in your experience, what is the longevity of the biopotential implant? In our experience, rodents tend to scratch out their EMG implants, in particular after a couple of months, making it a problem for chronic studies. So as I just said, we've, we've only done EMG implants in uh, two or three animals. But in all those animals, it lasted for months. I mean, it didn't fail us, right? So we kept the animals for, I think, two months in two rats. And in one rat, we kept for, I think, well over six months. And the recording was totally fine. We had no problems with it. And certainly, I didn't experience the animals scratching at the implant. So for EMG, we just get the biopotential channels and we suture the positive biopotential lead and the negative biopotential lead directly to the muscle. There's no additional electrode attachment per se, other than the, the raw biopotential cables that we, we suture to the muscle. And yeah, it's certainly we certainly didn't experience the animal scratching it, or I have no concern that it's not comfortable for the animal at all. Great. Okay, there's two more questions here. So can we use ketamine xylazine instead of gas anesthesia for this procedure? You can, but you probably won't have much success. When we first started doing these experiments, we were using ketamine xylazine. And in most animals, you can get them to survive the procedure. So the procedure takes anywhere between five to six hours in a trained surgeon. And, you know, in 80% of animals, they, you can get them to survive the procedure, but they won't make it overnight. You know, they just do not recover completely from the surgery. So most of the animals will die overnight. Yeah, I mean, it was a light bulb moment for us when we changed the isoflurane. You know, just an, every animal almost survives the procedure and will survive overnight. That's so that's great. the strongest recommendation I can make. Do not use ketamine xylazine, use isoflurane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Where do you see the future of this technique going? So optogenic stimulation. There's good evidence that viral vectors will last in primates for longer than 10 years and viral vector technologies have been used successfully and shown to be safe in humans, but not for optogenic stimulation. 
as yet. At the moment, the only place that I know that there's optogenic stimulation that's been done in people is to do with blindness and to recover some sight. But I think it's only a, a sort of a length of time, really, until we've got all the pieces together and somewhere it is trialled in the world. Great. And Connor, what about you? Any other thoughts? My final thought would be that I think as we get better and better with using optogenetics and we can translate to humans, we're going to see more and more clinical studies using this as a replacement for electrical deep brain stimulation. I think that's going to reveal a whole bunch of interesting things, particularly the efficacy profile compared to electrical stimulation will be different and the, the safety profile I think will be vastly different. We can't predict what that safety profile and what that efficacy profile will be like, but I will just say it will no doubt be vastly different because of the differences in the specificity and the fact that with optogenetics, you can be confident in what you're actually stimulating. With electrical deep brain stimulation, you really cannot be confident in what you're actually doing to the brain. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.